This is Kiefer, and welcome to the first new episode of Biojacked in... I don't even know how long. I'm not even sure what episode number this should be, so I'm just going to skip ahead and say welcome to Biojacked 100. For those of you who remember, Biojacked was and will remain dedicated to advanced and fundamental information about achieving ultimate performance. Unlike the previous incarnation of Biojacked, I'm going to try to be more inclusive and give advice about all aspects of enhancing performance. I'm going to talk about muscle growth, endurance when it's appropriate, and even cognitive enhancements. Also, unlike previous version of Biojacked, I'm not going to talk about the foundations of health. I cover that on my other podcast, Deconstructing Health. I will, however, focus on maintaining or increasing health throughout the performance-enhancing process. As I learned and developed a full theory on the fundamentals of health, it became obvious that you can't achieve absolute maximum performance without ensuring the body is in a maximum state of health. I know this goes contrary to the current world consciousness-derived dogma, and even contrary to my previous beliefs, but that's how science and insight work. Sometimes you have to get shit, get shit dead wrong before you discover what's dead right. And here we are. So expect Biojack to present the unexpected and expect I might contradict my own previous statements and absolutely expect that I'm going to contradict the vast majority of current common sense, which is more myth than science. This first new episode of Biojack extends the subject of episode 2 of Deconstructing Health, which covered the ketogenic diet and why it's not appropriate for 99% of the people currently using it. So if you want some background information, I recommend you listen to that podcast first. Doing so will help you to understand today's topics. If you're listening to this from the body.io website, the link is down below. Now onto the topic at hand, the ketogenic diet and exercise performance. As a corollary, I'm going to also talk about the carnivore diet and diet at the other extreme of carbohydrate intake, the vertical diet. Don't worry, you'll understand why it all fits together by the end of the podcast. Before I get into all of this, I want to talk about terms. Terms that sometimes come up around ketogenic diets and are being thrown around and have been thrown around for years. Terms that don't have any connection to biological processes. For example, metabolic flexibility. I don't know what that means. Or fat adaptation. I also don't know what that means. Whenever I ask experts about these phrases, they can't really explain to me what's broken or why the fat, the body needs to become fat adapted or how their diet is improving it. It's as if it's a given that everyone's metabolism is broken in some way and their one hour YouTube course on nutrition gave them the insight to fix it. While it is true that mitochondria can take a moment when shifting from pure fat burning to pure glucose burning in people with type 2 diabetes, this impairment is directly related to the health of the mitochondria. You unfortunately can't fix this in the ways these people promote. Metabolic training can make it worse. Ketogenic diets make you feel better but don't fix anything. And if you're only eating one kind of nutrient, you really don't know if you're metabolically flexible or not, do you? The other possible impairment of switching between nutrient substrates for energy 
can be transport related. If you almost never eat carbs for a month, then suddenly decide to, there will be problems. The transport mechanism for glucose in the cells has, has down-regulated. It'll take a second meal to really get it humming. The same happens if you're on an ultra-low-fat diet. Fatty acid transport machinery is temporarily slow if you decide to suddenly eat a lot of fat, but only temporarily. I just want to make it clear that these terms are somewhat nonsensical and I won't be using them unless I'm being ironic or sarcastic. Now that that's out of the way, I want to start with how a ketogenic diet works for an endurance athlete. The insights we gain are going to help us later on when we try looking at the use of a ketogenic diet for strength and hypertrophy training. Like most of my conversations, we're going to start by talking about mitochondria. Why? Because almost all significant signaling events for exercise performance start at the mitochondria. If you want to run longer, run faster, gain muscle, or get stronger, all of the triggers start with mitochondria. With that being said, there seems to be this myth that a ketogenic diet cures mitochondria and magically increases mitochondria content, especially for endurance athletes by a complex process called mitochondrial biogenesis, which is itself the complex interplay of two other complex processes, mitochondrial fusion and mitochondrial fission. I already discussed why ketogenic diets don't cure mitochondrial damage on the last episode of Deconstructing Health, or the DH podcast for short. And be honest, how many of you realize the DH is back in DH kefir? Anyway, I couldn't find any literature whatsoever demonstrating that a ketogenic diet or exogenous ketones can increase mitochondrial biogenesis. We know of one way, and only one way, that definitely increases mitochondrial mass and skeletal muscle tissue. It's called exercise. And if you want maximal mitochondrial increase, then endurance training is the best thing you can do. There is another possible way to increase mitochondria mass through calorie restriction. It's pretty much taken as truth at this point, but there's a lot of data suggesting that what's being observed isn't related to an increase in mitochondrial mass, but rather in mitochondrial function, making mitochondria more efficient instead of more prevalent. The jury's out on calorie restriction at the moment, but it holds some similarity to endurance training which is the king of mitochondria biogenesis, and it's instructive to look at what signals can cause this change. And bear with me here, we need to travel down this rabbit hole so that later I can explain what triggers hypertrophy. Long-term endurance exercise produces a particular kind of signal to mitochondria. After the first 30 to 60 seconds of exercise, nearly all energy requirements are produced by the aerobic process. This could be glucose to pyruvate and then pyruvate through the Krebs cycle or fatty acids into the Krebs cycle that achieve ATP production through beta oxidation. If the energy demand exceeds what the mitochondria can produce and there's a low ratio of ATP to ADP, and remember ATP loses a P, becomes ADP, and at the mitochondria ADP is recombined into ATP. So if you use ATP too quickly, you get more ADP than ATP. When this happens, 
the transcription genes for the various proteins of the electron transport chain in the mitochondria are upregulated. In other words, we get mitochondrial growth. Now, there are two ways that mitochondria can grow, and as of right now, it's incredibly difficult to measure which happens. Mitochondria can split and increase the number of, mito of mitochondria in the colony, or they can expand and each mitochondrion can process more energy. In endurance training, it appears that mitochondria get bigger rather than multiply. When they do, mitochondria form a highly connected structure. This expanded surface area to volume ratio of the mitochondria makes them highly efficient, which means well adapted to providing increased energy for prolonged periods of time with less waste, which is what you want if you're endurance training. If we think about what happens with calorie restriction, we see the same effect. Although the energy demand hasn't changed, the amount of fuel available has. This creates an identical situation to endurance training. And in the studies that have shown mitochondrial biogenesis with calorie restriction, it's of the same form and function as endurance training. It makes the idea that calorie restriction increases mitochondria biogenesis that much more likely. So the research points to a necessary and sufficient condition to remodel and increase mitochondria, a slow underproduction of energy over long periods of time. Now we can't know a priori that switching to a ketogenic diet will increase mitochondria content just because we want it to. We need to discover if there's some mechanism that allows for this to happen. And to date, no one has observed that a ketogenic diet or exogenous ketones increase mitochondrial density in skeletal muscle tissue in any animal independent of actual calorie restriction. What does happen, however, is that all the fat burning enzymes upregulate and the body gets way more efficient with oxygen usage when an athlete removes carbohydrates from the diet. Carbs seem to be a limiting factor preventing maximum endurance performance. And why do I say limiting? Well, if we have a carb-based diet, then sometimes glucose can spill over to meet excess energy demands and go through direct glycolysis. And this is also called glucose fermentation, or you might know it more frequently by anaerobic respiration. This is when lactic acid is produced. And it's not really lactic acid per se, it's lactate and unbound positive charges, which we often just call excess proton buildup. Now glucose fermentation is by far the greatest source of proton accumulation in a cell. Cells have proteins used as a buffering mechanism that can handle small overshoots. The mitochondria can also regulate energy production to try to help to dissipate some of those protons. But the greatest limiting factor to endurance performance is proton buildup and clearance. If you don't eat carbs, you've eliminated a large source of protons, which means you can run farther and at a faster pace. There's no magic to a ketogenic diet when it comes to running or endurance training. There is a distinct advantage and one we can explain. Ketones don't seem to play any part though because the longer you stay on a ketogenic diet, the less your skeletal muscle will even bother to metabolize the ketones. The ketones do, however, provide a clean, proton-free energy source for the heart and diaphragm, which is advantageous.
And what did the study say about all this? Exactly that. If you're on a ketogenic diet, you can run farther at a set pace than before the ketogenic diet. It's exactly what we would expect. Any claims about mitochondrial biogenesis and a ketogenic diet while endurance training would need to be really clever to expose a role of the ketogenic diet. As a runner or an endurance trainer, you hit maximum mitochondrial synthesis after about 70 days of training and increased synthesis continues for a little over a year, assuming you, you keep training. So at the end of a year, you're at your maximum capacity to produce energy for endurance training. Now where it gets tantalizing is when we add carbs back into the equation. Some of the earliest studies done on exercise performance and ketogenic diets were actually these transitional types of diets. For example, an athlete might spend a week or two on a ketogenic diet, then the day before the event, load up on carbs. This has consistently shown better performance over a, either a pure carbohydrate diet before and during the race or a pure ketogenic diet before and during the race. Now, before I continue, I should make this crystal clear. I am not advocating or recommending endurance exercise for health or fat loss. It fails for so many reasons, but I do understand wanting to push yourself to the extremes of physical endurance because I once felt the same and everyone deserves to have the best tools at their disposal. All right. You're probably tired of hearing about endurance training, and I'm tired about talking about it. So let's move on to resistance training. Why did I go through all this ridiculous detail about how muscular adaptations happen with endurance training? Uh, honestly, there would be no way to fully explain why the ketogenic diet is such a miserable failure at hypertrophy training without some foundation to start with. And it helps me to explain what I always say about carb backloading. You're not eating carbs to recover from your workout. You're eating carbs to prepare for the next workout. Like I said earlier, all the important signals related to the remodeling of skeletal muscle tissue, which includes mitochondrial biogenesis, myofibrillar growth, satellite cell differentiation, and so on, it all starts at the mitochondria. And the signals produced by or at the mitochondria depend on how we train and what we eat. There are two key differences when comparing endurance training and resistance training. And this resistance training includes to some degree sprint training, but I'll talk about that more as a combination of resistance and endurance training later. So the first thing that we're trying to achieve with resistance training is maximum power output over a very short amount of time. The second is that we continue in short bursts until exhaustion. Both of these are important. Taken together, these two conditions produce very different effects, and there are two important ones. Well, technically one important one that triggers an equally important secondary effect. Now you'll get the payoff for listening to my long sonorous discourse on mitochondrial metabolism. Unlike endurance training, resistance training puts a massive strain on the mitochondria for rapid energy production, a strain that it can't manage quickly enough. Luckily, with glucose or glycogen available, that excess energy can be met with a massive burst of glucose fermentation. Now, naive sites like Livestrong and other 
popular quote-unquote health websites will complain about how inefficient glycolysis is, which is the glucose fermentation. And they'll say that the aerobic burning of glucose will provide 38 ATP per molecule of glucose, whereas the fermentation will only produce 4 ATP if you consider the entire glycolytic cycle. What they fail to realize is how fast fermentation is compared with oxidation. In the time it takes the mitochondria to turn one glucose into 38 ATP, glucose fermentation will have produced roughly 120 ATP. And it turns out that fermentation also releases less heat. So in this burst of energy production, we get a massive buildup of free protons, and this state can last for 15 to 30 seconds. These protons are the first major signaling event to muscle tissue. First, the extra positive charge from the protons prevent calcium ions, which are also positive charge, from moving along what's called the electrical gradient to make the muscle contract. Yeah, that's right. It takes basically the shuttling of calcium ions is what causes muscle fibers to contract. And also, the, we have to then bring the calcium ions back to release the contraction. So it takes energy to contract the muscle, and it also actually takes energy to release the muscle. And then when the proton buildup gets too high, that's the beginning of muscular failure. And as I just said about how it takes energy to relax the muscles as well as it does to contract them, that's why rigor mortis sets in after death. Actually, the calcium ions can no longer be shuttled back against the gradient and so the muscles stiffen up but it's a temporary it's a temporary condition after death rigor mortis doesn't last forever so anyway the proton buildup and this inability to shuttle calcium is actually one source of damage necessary to trigger growth or one signaling event the other comes from the formation of reactive oxygen species, which I'll just call ROS. And these are the things that everyone's always worried about when they take antioxidants or the NSAIDs like Tylenol or Advil. And the antioxidants are supposed to neutralize the ROS and NSAIDs just prevent them from ever forming. And spoiler alert, if you're taking dietary antioxidants, they actually don't do anything. Now, the reason the free protons create the reactive oxygen species is because once the proton buildup gets too high on the outside of the mitochondria, there's no longer an electrical gradient to allow the mitochondria to shuttle protons out. This is a problem. This is how ADP gets turned back into ATP. When the mitochondria can't offload its protons, the electrical transport chain starts to leak electrons. And these free electrons form all kinds of oxide compounds. And this is the reactive oxygen species. And the formation of reactive oxygen species is the second critical step that signals muscle growth. Now, it takes both these signals to trigger hypertrophy and actually to remodel skeletal muscle tissue for strength. This is why insides like, or NSAIDs like Tylenol prevent the hypertrophic effects of resistance training. 
In all of this, the mitochondrial mass does increase, but this time it's a little different. The mitochondrial growth occurs in a different part of the muscle, and it doesn't form the larger concentrated mitochondria mass like with endurance training. Instead, they're spread out and distributed more randomly and increase in number. So they're smaller and more numerous, which leads to slightly lower efficiency, but greater power output. And you don't get nearly this, the same amount of mitochondrial biogenesis. Now, I know this seems really technical and, a lot, and it's a lot to take in, but I think it's necessary to explain how muscles get the signal to grow. This explains a few interesting things, like the difference between 6 to 10 reps to exhaustion versus, say, 20 or more reps, which don't cause as much muscle growth. The lower reps trigger more growth because they utilize the quick and damaging anaerobic energy system, while the more reps start to fall outside of the window of highest anaerobic activity and start to use, utilize the oxidative pathways to a greater degree, hence losing out on all the chance to create a maximal signal. We can also explain why resting one minute or less between sets has shown slower size gains compared with resting three to five minutes. If you don't rest long enough, the mitochondria stay primed to continue utilizing the oxidative pathway from the, during the following set. And there's basically an enzymatic trigger that basically doesn't get to reset. But if you rest long enough, the three to five minutes, when you start back, then you're starting back in the regime of maximum anaerobic usage. This is also the reason occlusion training works. Once the mitochondria remodel and grow, it becomes harder and harder to produce the beneficial anaerobic damage. Another way to produce electron leakage and consequently reactive oxygen species formation is through hypoxia. So in other words, oxygen deprivation, which is what occlusion training creates. So you get greater ROS production and the right kind of damage and you trigger growth. So the basics come down to this. We need glucose to trigger growth during resistance training. Of course, the entire cascade of events is complex and involves many different signals and your post-workout nutrition and amino acid availability, but this is where the cascade starts. So if this framework holds water, then we can make a prediction. The faster glucose can be delivered to a cell, the greater our ability to signal growth. This would predict that having full glycogen stores in the working muscle should increase the effectiveness of training. Or the inverse corollary, having empty glycogen stores, like on a ketogenic diet, should severely limit muscle growth due to training. Now the depend dependence of training results on glycogen storage has already been explored and demonstrates that this is the case. Again, this is why with carb backloading, I'm so adamant that you're eating carbs for the next workout, not to recover from the preceding workout. It's a very important distinction. And so just a quick word on theories. Like this is a kind of comprehensive theory that about muscle growth and how we see all those changes, and it's all supported by the research so far. But a hypothesis or a theory that connects seemingly unrelated data is usually a sign that it's a robust theory and it's headed in the right direction. It helps us make sense of the world. 
That's what I've tried to do the, for the last several years. And here's an example of one piece that does a lot of explaining all by itself. Now, my full theory explains a lot more data in terms of a few simple principles, kind of like this. So to get back to resistance training on a ketogenic diet, I hope where you've seen where all this go, is going. It should be obvious that if you're not eating carbs, you've really crippled your ability to get any type of gains in the gym. And to date, I haven't found a single study that demonstrates it's possible to gain a significant amount of muscle tissue on a purely ketogenic diet. It, it just doesn't exist. But for full disclosure, there should be some ways to circumvent this limitation. You could have a genetic abnormality. Let's say you've got some mutation in one or both of the genes that encode for myostatin you can probably still make some serious gains. And even sitting around your house, you'll make some serious gains. Secondly, you can take anabolic steroids and specifically testosterone-derived anabolics as growth hormone, insulin-like growth factors, those kind of things. They won't alter the protein dynamics of skeletal muscle tissue in a way that will still help you to gain mass. Now, this happens because anabolics they modify the baseline protein dynamics so the non-training related protein synthesis and breakdown and they basically lessen the base breakdown rate of muscle while increasing the synthesis rate so this is why men can take testosterone sit on the couch and literally gain muscle and lose body fat and this has been demonstrated in research so um I said I'd come back to sprint in you know sprint training, sprint endurance training, uh, which includes things like CrossFit and other sports trainings. And if you're on a ketogenic diet, you'll get a little better mitochondrial benefit than with endurance training, but little, if any, hypertrophy benefit. And so you know that covers endurance training and resistance training, but there's still might be other performance-driven reasons where you might think the ketogenic diet will give you some kind of advantage. Although some people might argue if this counts as performance or not. I'm thinking of contest prep or to get really low levels of body fat while preserving muscle tissue. Now here I've often heard and read that ketogenic diets and ketones specifically are anti-proteolytic. In other words, they stop the body from burning skeletal muscle tissue. I have been hunting for proof of this for almost a decade, and not a single study has ever addressed it, let alone mentioned it, let alone demonstrated it. The most recent review of ketogenic diets that I could find did cite a paper for their anti-proteolytic claim. So they, they claimed that ketones are anti-proteolytic, and they cited a paper for that, but when I read the paper, it never once mentioned or demonstrated or referenced any type of protein sparing ability of ketones. Now, there is one interesting study, however, that examined a calorie restricted diet with overweight and obese women. And they split it up so one group ate a, a normal carbohydrate load and the other was ketogenic. And the results showed that a ketogenic diet didn't necessarily help to preserve total, total body lean tissue, but did preserve muscle mass a little better. 
Now, did ketones or the ketogenic diet have anything to do with this? To be honest, with everything that I've looked at and the metabolism of ketones and mitochondria and fat, um, there's no known effect that can make this happen. And they've looked at a lot of various signaling issues around the mitochondria. Um, so it seems unlikely that it's ketones or the ketogenic diet. But I do know that if you remove carbs from the diet and therefore have lower incursions of insulin with each meal, something more interesting happens. Although most people don't realize it, the body does have a storage mechanism for protein. It's the splachnic bed, which is basically the mass of your internal organs. They've demonstrated that when you eat protein with carbs, up to 80% of the ingested protein can get incorporated into the splachnic bed instead of heading to your skeletal muscle tissue. When insulin levels fall, this protein actually can be released from the splanchnic bed and the amino acids can supply your muscles with building material. The problem is that only about 50% of what went in comes out. So there's a huge waste factor for incorporation and breakdown and release. If you remove insulin, more of the protein from each meal, the, the majority will actually go to sustaining the current size of your muscle mass or helping it grow. The splachnic bed will also release a lot of what's been previously stored. So why we see some lean tissue loss with a ketogenic diet, but not skeletal muscle loss, is because of this storage mechanism and the lack of insulin in the diet. It's, it's literally just moving, moving proteins in and out of storage to help maintain the muscle mass during calorie deprivation. And this also explains when you go on extreme calorie restriction or starvation diets, also both of which uh, produce low insulin loads, the splanchnic bed is where the vast majority of lean tissue loss comes from before a significant decrease in muscle mass. So much of the magic anti-catabolic effects of ketones and ketogenic diets is just doesn't exist. But I did mention in the last episode of Deconstructing Health that if you're attempting to achieve maximum fat loss with an ultra-low-carb diet, as you drop below around 8% body fat, you're likely to end up on a ketogenic diet. And it's because of how your macro ratios will come out at this point. The trouble with this is that ketogenesis, not the ketones, just the actual ketogenesis, down-regulates leptin which is an important hormone to signal the continued release of body fat. This is the one time you could get a benefit from using exogenous ketones. They shut down the body's natural ketogenesis and can allow leptin levels to recover. Now there's a better way to achieve this uh, that also allows you to gain a little bit of muscle while leaning down, and it's called carbonite. So with all this behind us, I want to touch on a couple of diets besides the ketogenic diet because at this point they're really easy to assess. And let's start with the carnivore diet. I don't really have any problems with the basics of the carnivore diet because it can be tuned for maximum fat loss without going into ketosis. But as you can guess from everything I just said, it's also not appropriate for muscle gain. 
although it would probably be fine for endurance or cross training as long as your goal wasn't primarily as long as your goal is primarily increased endurance otherwise it's going to suffer a lot of the problems associated with the ketogenic diet if you're going to go weeks on end without any carbs it can also lead to a purine depletion so purine molecules those are the backbones of atp and adp and the associated molecules used for energy production and this will severely decrease your ability to perform any athletic activity um, but that's kind of a topic for another time and how we would deal with that but a poorly constructed ketogenic diet and almost all the recommendations i've seen are poorly constructed ketogenic diets they can lead to the same problem so if you find yourself tiring out faster and faster with your resistance training in each session you're probably suffering from this purine depletion now on the other extreme of carb intake from the keto diet or the carnivore diet it's the vertical diet by stan efforting now since i talked about growth signals and that they require carbs the vertical diet provides plenty of carbs so it should be a good diet for hypertrophy training now the carb recommendations are going to be too much for most people and you know with the originator of the diet i'll just say um without them having a real understanding of how the body mobilizes and stores carbs the difference in the effect of stored carbs versus consumed carbs and the true needs of each individual athlete you probably have to play with this quite a bit to get it right so that you don't gain too much fat while you're going through the hypertrophy process and you know it's the same problem eating a lot of carbs all day every day will lead to mitochondrial degradation it's unavoidable so you will suffer consequences from this later on in life and sure it might be 10 years later but that's not my goal with any of this my goal is to make sure you are super healthy all the time the rest of your life now the vertical diet i do have a complaint against it because it fits into a category i call selecting arbitrary foods or saf diets for short these usually include some specialized list of foods to eat or a list of foods to avoid or more times than not both and the vertical diet falls into the both category they, there's an explanation for the food choices but they're basically nonsense if you wanted the most absorbable nutrient dense diet you drank protein powders maltodextrin and mcts with a multivitamin multimineral tablet for every meal it might not be the tastiest diet in the world but there's at least science to support the idea of most absorbable and nutrient dense foods i mean the the, the food list just appears random to me i would say it's based on personal choice so <clears throat> the foods prescribed by the vertical diet just aren't special by any imaginable scientific or functional measure paleo is another example of an saf as is the whole 30 plan or whatever it's called and you should notice that saf can also be an acronym for a more appropriate description of these diets stupid as fuck all right well i'm done here until next time